For tens of thousands of years, humans were foragers. Yet, in a relatively short period, circa 10,000 to 5,000 years ago, agricultural systems appeared in several parts of the world. This transformed human ecology, social organisation, demography and even art and religion. Yet there isn't a consensus of opinion as to why, as opposed to how, it occurred. The need to feed people uh, raises this question about why do people start to develop uh, agriculture at all. If you've got the right circumstances and then there is a change in environment which makes it difficult to continue to feed people with the lifestyle you've had, then it may be that in those circumstances people find alternatives and those alternatives then enable you to feed more people and so even if the environment then improves again, chances are you have too many mouths to feed to easily revert to hunting and gathering. Chris Scar, Professor of Archaeology at Durham University, is describing what is known as the Oasis Theory, which suggests that the relationship between humans and the environment is the key reason why agriculture developed. The closely related demographic theory, on the other hand, suggests that the rise in world population following the end of the Ice Age forced people to adopt agriculture. But did this improve the lives of the first farmers? One of the things that people have said about agriculture is that on the whole it's more labour-intensive than hunting and gathering. And that's one of the reasons why people have looked to explanations which you might say are kind of coercive factors, that people have been forced into agriculture because they had no alternative. That is ultimately what may happen. But at the very beginning, it could be that agriculture was developed because people wanted special status foods for feasting, that it was actually a social need. I mean, how much of what we do in our lives is generated by competition with others? And a lot of that is powered by desire for new things, new statuses, new whatever it might be, respect, recognition, also important. And in small-scale societies, a lot of those sorts of factors are generated by the ability to, for instance, throw feasts. One possibility is that some of these foods that were being grown were actually intended specially as feasting foods. I've always been interested in the idea that some of the wheat that was grown, some of the barley was grown, may have been turned into beer. And you can just imagine the impact of having an early form of beer to use in feasts to impress your neighbours, to use as a hospitality food, and the way that that would have perhaps been a route to social status. This is the feasting hypothesis, where social competition and emulation drive the practice of developing a reliable, consistent food source. But is there a really sharp distinction between hunter-gatherer and farming societies? Is it necessarily a case of either-or? Professor Trevor Watkins, based at Edinburgh University, has worked extensively on sites in southwest Asia. There are plenty of places in the Near East where we now know that there isn't a simple tipping point where people stop hunting and gathering because they've switched to farming. Now we're seeing places, Çatalhöyük is one, uh, in central Turkey, and there are several others uh, where people do begin to farm and are uh, reliant on the cereal crops they're growing and the legumes they're growing and on the sheep they're herding but they're still supplying a significant part of their meat diet from hunted animals and they're not bothering to domesticate them probably because they don't need to and they're also gathering all sorts of other wild plant foods which they don't replace with the cereal and legume diet that they're, they're farming. So farmers supplement their diet with wild food but there are equally hunter-gatherers who supplement their diet with forms of farmed food. There are a lot of ethnographic examples of societies which are 
hunters and gatherers in our terminology, but may help to propagate the plants that they actually rely upon. So, for instance, in northern Australia, there are communities that live on wild yams and will dig a yam up and will actually cut a part of it off and put it back in the hole and take away the rest to eat. So uh, ensuring that the plant regenerates. It shows that this sort of relationship between people and their their food sources isn't necessarily simply of exploitation and collecting. They're being very careful to make sure that they don't deplete their resources. The transition is also difficult to detect when studying the animals that were initially domesticated. There are some cases, particularly in Southwest Asia, where you have a wild form which is domesticated in that area, so you have to be careful to distinguish between wild and domesticated forms of an animal. But equally, there are other cases where a wild species never becomes domesticated. And I was thinking of this transition from gazelle hunting to sheep and goat herding, where it seems that gazelle never were brought into the domesticated category and that when domesticated animals come into use, it's actually replaced by sheep and goat. That's one of the indicators where, if you know enough about the natural environment 10,000 years ago in round figures and you know something about animal ecology, then you say, yes, gazelle has never been known to be domesticated. So if there are fallow deer there, then they're being hunted. That's one of the indicators. And the other indicator is if you've got a lot of species, generally people are hunting. If you've got uh, a lot of birds and tortoise and hare and fox and sheep and goat and gazelle and wild bull and something else, then the chances are that uh, this is a spectrum of hunted animals. Whereas if you've got sheep and goat or sheep, goat and pig, then almost certainly it's farming. It's intensive herding of a very limited number of species. In terms of the material remains, being able to gauge whether a society is hunter-gatherer or farming, or at what point between the two, requires expert assistance from an archaeobotanist or an archaeozoologist. As a crude dirt archaeologist with black fingernails, I can recognise when there's animal bones coming out of the ground and I can sometimes say, oh, that's cattle as opposed to deer, as opposed to sheep and goat. When you're at critical times, I mean, there's sometimes, if it's medieval period, 99 times out of 100, of course, it's going to be herding. If you're deep in the Paleolithic, it's going to be hunting. But when you're getting to critical times like we're talking about, then you are reliant on the archaeozoologist getting a sufficiently decent sample of bone from the excavation. Even more so for the plant remains, you may be able to see in the field that, yes, you're getting cereal grains, yes, you're getting lentils and various other things, but you still need the archaeobotanist to examine that material under a microscope, usually. On the whole, most farming societies have one or two plant species on which they rely very heavily, and equally a small range of animals, whereas a hunting society will have a much wider range of foods that they can collect or hunt in their local environment. So, for food lovers, the hunter-gatherer diet is likely to offer more variety. The beginnings of agriculture probably corresponds to a reduction in the range of foods eaten the culinary range is probably greatly reduced. And we know, in fact, of course, from studies that sometimes that seems to have resulted in a reduction in health. 